This evening we're opening the Word of God to Psalm 14. The 14th Psalm. It's not too long, just seven verses. We'll read all of the Psalm together. Psalm 14. And we'll commence our reading at verse 1. So let's hear the word of the Lord. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Of all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. He has shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. O oh, that salvation that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Amen. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Let's just once again please take a few moments and encourage you as God's people to pray. and pray that the Lord would search out those among us who are not saved. Use the message over the internet and even speak to our own hearts and strengthen us in our faith and build us up in the things of God. So let's just look to the Lord, please. Our gracious God and loving and eternal Father, we come, we bow in thy presence, and we thank thee for thy grace, thy love, thy mercy to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that thou would, Lord, still every wandering thought. We pray, O God, that thou would captivate, Lord, those thoughts that would run away with certain individuals here, and we pray that thou would focus them upon the word, that you give them a heart to hear and an ear to hear. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give this, help, this preacher help, the help that he needs. And Lord, I pray and I confess my need of cleansing. And I pray that you would wash me now in the precious blood and that you would fill me with the promised Holy Ghost. We thank thee that thou art not a man, that thou should lie. And therefore, having promised the Spirit, Lord, to them that will ask, Lord, we know that Thou will give the Spirit. We take Thee at Thy Word. Thy Word is truth. And so, Father, I pray that You will use the message. I pray that You would single out, that Thou would speak, that Thou would, O oh God, search out even over the internet. And Lord, may this message find, find a resting place in a heart. We pray that Thou will, Lord, let this word be glorified. May it run, O God. And we pray, O Father, that thou would be pleased to bless it even to the salvation of the lost. So hear prayer and bring glory to thy Son. For this I asked in the Savior's precious and his worthy name. Amen. Now, there is no doubt we are living in an ever-increasing atheistic society, especially in the Western world. A look at the recent uh, census figures will tell you that that is the case. Less and less people are going to church, any church for that matter, and more and more are identifying as atheist, agnostic, 
or non-religious. Now, with theos being the Greek word for God, theism is the belief that there is a God. And when we add the prefix a, which signifies and identifies a negative, well, then atheism simply defined as a philosophy that says no God. Now, while most atheists would not consider themselves to be anti-theists, those who are opposed to God or against God, uh, they're simply those who do not believe in God. Well, really, their actions and their acclamations are, in fact, a direct attack on God Himself. And they, like all sinners, are opposed to Him, His ways, and His will. Now, in their increasing efforts to reduce the influence of Christianity in the public arena, atheists and secular humanists have become oblivious to an irony, that as they seek to remove Christianity out of society, they fill the vacuum with their own faith-based but non-theistic religion. Atheism is a religion because the atheist has their own beliefs. The atheist will say, well, they only believe in those things that they can prove. But they cling to beliefs which are unprovable by empirical science. That's science that can be tested, observed, recorded, and repeated. They build their beliefs upon theoretical science. And that is something entirely different. Something that is founded on our own presuppositions, the chief of which is this to the atheist, there is no God. It is because they believe in that which they cannot prove, whether they like it or not, atheism is a faith-based system. They have a belief about their origins, where the universe and where man came from. They have a belief about how one should live, And it goes something like this, live and let live. Do as you would please. They have a belief about what happens when they die. And if they are consistent with their own beliefs, well then the grave, the end of the animal, is the same as their end. They have their beliefs, whether they like to admit it or not. Now, as I mentioned, the census shows that atheism is on the rise. But atheism is no new thing. It may have really taken off in the 16th and, or sorry, the 17th and the 18th century during the time of the Enlightenment, and then gained traction in the 19th century through the work of Charles Darwin. But like every other sin or system opposed to God, it has been present since the fall of man. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'll quote him again, he said this, With all man's inventiveness, he can invent no new sin. There is nothing new under the sun. And as we have read here tonight in Psalm 14, the Psalm of David, we find that atheism and the atheist was about in his day. The God-denier was present in David's day as he or she is today. Now, these words that we have read in Psalm 14 are basically repeated in Psalm 53. And the Apostle Paul, he quotes these words in Romans 
uh, the book of Romans as well. And when God repeats something in His Word, it shows its importance. It's something that we ought to take heed of. It's as if God is underlining it, highlighting it, putting it in bold print, something that He wants to grab our attention with that you and I might understand and take note of. Now, I understand the irony of preaching such a message in a church building. Many people would make the assumption, well, surely no one sitting in a church would be a God denier, would deny the existence of God. While that might be true with respect to the lips, the life of the church-going sinner, uh, the life that they live, it often declares that they too believe that there is no God. Now tonight we're going to consider some of the verses of this chapter under this heading, the Almighty's assessment of the atheist. This is the Almighty's assessment of the atheist. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to, there's four points tonight, is a scoffing declaration. In verse 1, we read these words, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. The atheist with a scoff declares, there is no God. Now there is something about this statement that the atheist, that the God denier must understand. It's what we call an absolute statement. It is a bold assertion to say that there is no God, because for an absolute statement to be true, that would require absolute knowledge about the subject spoken of. And let me give you another example of this. Here's another absolute statement that I could say to you. There is no gold in China. Now for me to be accurate in that statement, and for that statement to be true, I would have to know the contents of every stone, every item of jewelry, every dental filling, every atom in the nation of China. Now, to say that there is no God would require, it would require complete knowledge of everything in the universe. And if the atheist, if the God denier was to be reasonable, the only thing that they can say is, in the very limited knowledge that I have, I believe there is no God. Now, that is a very different thing altogether than saying there is no God. Such an individual is an agnostic. They are a, a doubter, a skeptic concerning God's existence. Now, there are those who are openly avowed atheists, and they have no problem telling or declaring to the world their belief that there is no God. There are prominent deniers of God, men like biologist Richard Dawkins or astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, or comedian Ricky Gervais. And these men, they are bold in their declaration that there is no God. But notice the realm where this declaration is made in this verse. It's in the heart. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. You see, the heart is the center, is the seat of man where his will and his motions reside. 
And it's from the heart that his choices and words and deeds flow. This is the heart wish. This is the inner desire and declaration of the sinner that there is no God. Now, Albert Barnes, he commented on such an individual as described in this verse, and this is what he said. He may not have said this to others. He may not have taken the position openly before the world that there is no God. But such a thought has passed through his mind, and he has cherished it. And such a thought, either as a matter of belief or desire, is at the foundation of his conduct. This is something that goes beyond the reason of the mind. And the intellectual ability of the person, this is a deep down problem of the heart. Therefore, that being the case, it is not something that can be changed, an attitude. It's not a disposition that can be changed by simply presenting evidence of whatever sort that might be to such an individual, thinking that if only, if only they viewed things the way I can see things, through a a biblical worldview, well, then they would understand, then they would believe that there is a God. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, presenting evidence. And that is something that we should be able to give as a Christian, a worldview explanation of all the things that we see and experience. But this is a problem of a heart. A heart that is bent away from God and has no desire for God. Now, to prove this point, I quote from a man, Dr. George Wall. He's a Nobel Prize winner in biology, professor of biology at Harvard University. And this is what he said. There are only two possibilities as as to how life arose. Now, this is a, a Nobel Prize winning professor. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is a spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a creative act of God. Now listen as he reveals the wicked bias of a sinful heart. He says, I will not accept that philosophically because to do so and because I don't want to believe in God, therefore I choose to believe in that which is scientifically impossible spontaneous generation arising to evolution. That's not a problem of that man's intellect. That's not a problem of that man's reasoning. That's a problem of his heart. He says, I refuse to believe and I will not accept that there is a God. See, if one is to believe in God, and that God is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, then there needs, there must be a change of heart, and that is something only the Lord can do by the operation of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word of God. In the Hebrew, the scoffing declaration, 
The Hebrew word for God is Elohim here in verse 1. That's the plural form of the word, but it's translated rightly so in the singular. It's a word that occurs 32 times in the opening chapter of the Bible. And it's a word that reveals the Trinitarian nature of the great God of heaven. It's a word that means one who is sovereign, one who is governor, one who is the judge. And this is something, or I should say someone, that the sinner does not want to believe exists. They don't want to acknowledge that there is one who created them. For that implies his authority over them and that they are dependent upon him. They want to think that they are autonomous, that they are independent. And so they don't want to believe in the one who is sovereign. They don't want to believe that there is one who governs. One who is the lawgiver, hence the rightful judge of of all, and who will render unto every man according to their works. The sinner does not like the truth, that they are accountable, that they are guilty of breaking God's law, condemned and deserving of judgment. No God, no law, no law, no sin, no sin, no guilt, no guilt, no punishment. And therefore, for the atheists, it's convenient for them to dismiss the whole concept of God. That's what they do. This is a mantra that they repeat over and over again in their heart. Because even though they cannot prove that there is no God, they wish this to be the case in order that they might live as they please. But to say there is no God does not make it so. That's the great delusion of the devil, and it's one of his most successful tools in these days. Before I move on, we notice that the words in verse 1, there is, have been supplied by the translators to, to give the flow of the meaning. They're in italics. But you could easily read this verse like this, the fool has said in his heart, no God. There are those, and they wouldn't claim to be atheists or God deniers. But continually within their heart they say, no God wonder, is that you in the gallery? God commands sinners to repent and believe the gospel. But you say, no God. Not audibly, not outwardly, but in your heart. God commands sinners to come to His dear Son, but, but you say, no God. God has been speaking to you. God's been calling you. And yet the declaration of your heart is what? It's no God. I will not. I won't. Scoffing declaration. There is no God. But secondly, this evening, notice a solemn designation. Listen to how God designates a person who says there is no God, or even those who continually say no to the claims and the commands of God. He calls them a fool. This is the Almighty's assessment, maybe, of you tonight. He calls you a fool. Is that what God thinks of you this evening? Many times have you said, no, God. I won't, I will not. Here's God's assessment of such an individual. Now, the Hebrew word for fool in this verse, it does not mean someone with a low IQ. 
Many of those well-known atheists, they no doubt would outscore me on a Mensa test. I freely admit that. But the word here, it means a vile, a wicked person. It refers to someone who has made a moral decision to turn their back on God and live their life as if there is no God. You see, atheism is never about a lack of information. It is never sincere. It's always a moral choice for evil, for wickedness, a conscious, deliberate choice of life to deny the existence of God. Now, God does not designate someone a fool for no reason. He has just cause for labeling those who say such and who live in such a manner as there is no God. He is a just cause for labeling them or designating them as fools. Such a person is a fool because they suppress the truth. In unrighteousness is the Apostle Paul. We read about that in Romans chapter 1. Well, what truth? What truth is it that they suppress the truth that there is a God who is over all and with whom we have to do? I was speaking to the children in the school on Friday about four things that testify to the fact that there is a God and reveal to us something about who He is. And yet people hold these things down. I read a commentator on that verse, holding the truth and unrighteousness, and he said as if they put those things into a box and they sit on them with their scoffing declaration, there is no God. How foolish it is for man to deny the existence of God or to live as if there is no God when creation cries out and testifies that there is a God. In creation, we see cause and effect. We see Design and beauty, or design and purpose, and beauty and wonder. And that can only be so if there is a being who is all-wise and all-powerful. Of course, there's many verses in Scripture that point this out. There's well-known verses in Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork day unto day. Uttereth speech in the night, on tonight showeth knowledge from day to day and night to night. It's not silent creation. It does not withhold its knowledge from man, but it reveals to man that there is a God. Sir Isaac Newton, the famous mathematician and physicist, he had a friend who was an atheist. And that friend did not believe in God and came to visit Newton one day. That man believed that the universe, well, that just happened. As he said, he came to Newton. And Newton had a model of the solar system, the sun, the planets, the moon. They were all in their place, and the size of the spheres were all in proportion. And the planets and the the satellites, they revolved around the sun at their relative speeds. And you know, the man looked at that little model of the solar system, and he was so intrigued by it, and he commented on the workmanship of it. And the craftsmanship was brilliant. And he looked at Newton and he says, well, who made that? And Newton looked at him and he replied, nobody. It just happened. And the man got the point that Newton was making. You see, the individual is a fool 
to say there is no God because of creation, but another reason, a just reason why God calls the atheist, the God denier, the individual who lives as if there is no God a fool, is the matter of the conscience, the candle of sin, the heart of man. Proverbs 20, verse 27, which reveals to man those things that are wrong, bringing upon man the feeling of guilt and shame and fear and remorse by the blushing of the face, by the glancing over the the shoulder, by the trying to cover their tracks or running away or making a denial of what they have done. All those things give testimony to the fact that there is a moral law, that there is a lawgiver. If there was no law, there would be no transgression. And if there is no transgression, there would be an absence of those things that I have mentioned that the conscience brings to bear upon the individual. You don't feel guilty of a law you haven't broken. Or if there is no law, you didn't feel guilty walking into church tonight because there isn't a law to say that you shouldn't come in. And therefore, the very fact that the conscience brings to bear upon an individual feelings of guilt and shame and remorse and fear and causes the individual to look over their shoulder, to cover their tracks, to hide what they have done, it brings testimony to the fact that there is a moral law, that there is a lawgiver. And Paul deals with the universal witness of the conscience there in Romans chapter 2. And he shows that it's not confined to those who have been exposed to or who have knowledge of the Scripture. But all have the moral law written upon their heart. And that's an evidence that God is over all. Surely the conscience reveals to man there is a God who is holy and just, And it's also foolish to deny the existence of God because of the canon of Scripture. How else can this book be explained apart from the supernatural revelation of God? It self-authenticates to the fact that it is God's Word. And that should be enough for man. That's enough. God says this is His Word. But more than that, its internal evidence testifies to the fact that it is. Its unity, its prophecy, its authority, its inerrancy, its sufficiency, its clarity. But also external evidence. It confirms the fact that this is the Word of God. Archaeological, scientific discoveries. The indestructibility of the Word, it's still here. It's still the most popular book in the world. It's preservation, it's popularity, it's power. There is no book on planet earth that has impacted or has affected mankind like this book here. And yet, the fool tries to suppress the witness of the Word, of a God who is true and faithful by actively seeking to what? What does He do to the Word? Destroy the Word, discredit the Word, or try to disprove the Word which cannot be done. For though the heaven and the earth shall pass away, God's Word 
shall not pass away. It's all so foolish. It's all so foolish to say there is no God, for it ignores the witness of Christ. There can be no denying existence of one in history called Jesus of Nazareth. Secular historians, they even write about such a man, and yet he was no ordinary man as, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He was a man approved of God. Among you by miracles and wonders and signs, approved to be who he claimed to be, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, God manifest in the flesh, God a fairy God. But the skeptics and the heretics, well, they would say, well, he never claimed to be God, but he did. He did claim to be God. And that's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him because of that very claim. He turned to one of his disciples and he said to them, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. But the fool will try again to repress such a truth that Christ is God in all sorts of ways. Just think of how they've attacked his person over the years, the blasphemies that they've said about him. Things that I would not like to repeat in this pulpit. These are just four reasons why God justly designates the person who says there is no God or who lives in a manner that there is no God, that they're not accountable, that there's no eternity, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no judgment, there's none of those things. These are just four of the reasons why God justly designates an individual a fool. It's as if they stick their fingers in their ears and cover their eyes and say in their heart there is no God, but such are the actions of a fool. Because we read there in Romans 1, for that which may be known of God, listen, is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. They know there's a God. They can say within their heart, and they can say with their lips, and they can live their lives as if there is no God. But the Word tells me that which may be known of God, it's manifest in them. They know. One man said, as the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the denial of God is the height of foolishness. What you have with the atheist, or even the one who lives as if there is no God, is open defiance. And that brings us back to the meaning of the word fool, a vile and a wicked person. It is a moral choice they make to deny there is a God. It is a moral choice to live as if there is no God. And that flows out of a wicked heart. And such a heart is revealed by the life. And that brings me to my third point this evening. A sinful depravity. In verse 2 we're told that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. The words look down, they have the idea of bending forward. 
And it's not what we do. What We want to look at something more intently and more closely at something. We, we lean or we bend forward. And, and that is the language, or uh, that is what the language is conveying to us here, that God made a, made a thorough search with a close examination. And he did this to see if any sought after him, if any had the true wisdom concerning who he was. But he found that there was none, no, not one, See, such a belief that there is no God is closely linked either as a cause or a consequent with a corrupt life. That's what it's linked with. For immediately following, we have a description given by God of such a life of an individual, sinful depravity of such an individual. It's a description of really how all are by nature, for all are unbelievers of God to some degree or another. And listen to how God describes those sinners in their depravity in verses 3 and 4. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity, no, no knowledge, who eat up bread, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord. Now, this is God's assessment even child of God, of what we once were. There's no point thinking that we are any different. We weren't all. That's God's conclusion, all. And this is still true of you, sinner. This is God's description of you and your sinful depravity. And I'm going to go through these verses quickly. We have here a description of the sinner's departure because it says they are all gone aside. God's given man his standard. He's given man his law. But sinners walk in their own ways. They do that which is right in their own eyes. The prophet Isaiah, he, he said those words, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Sinners, they have departed from God, his worship and his ways. And the Bible tells us that the way of man, his own way, it leads to destruction. But... There is one, the shepherd and bishop of men's souls, who seeks the straying ones. So there's a description of the sinner's departure. There's a description of the sinner's defilement. But it tells us there, they are, they are all together become filthy. Become filthy. Now notice that. It's not they are all together filthy. It's become filthy. You see, God did not make man in this condition. Adam was pristine. Adam was holy. But by his transgression, he was defiled, and he plunged the whole mankind into the muck and the mire of sin. And you need cleansing, sinner. Well, there is cleansing through the blood of a lamb. There is one who is seeking, the bishop and shepherd of men's souls. There is one who can cleanse you, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have, thirdly, a description of the sinner's deeds. In verse 1, we read about those who have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And then on down in verse 3, there is none that doeth good, no, not one corresponding in Psalm 53, the words there, they have done abominable iniquity. 
See, the more atheistic a society gets in its thinking, the more it removes God from its thoughts altogether, well then, the more perverse it will become in its activity. To have no accountability, to have no objective standard of morality, to say that we are nothing more than animals, well, that's really to throw off the shackles of moral restraint in one's conscience. And that is exactly what we see in society, abominable works, abominable iniquity, perverseness, pushed, promoted, and practiced everywhere we look. But the God, who took Jacob the twister and made him a prince of God, who turned him into Israel, can do the same with you, sinner. He can straighten you out. The sinner's departure, the sinner's defilement, the sinner's deeds. Fourthly, we have a description of the sinner's darkness. Verse 4, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge. You know that darkness in the Bible, it speaks of ignorance, ignorance to spiritual things, the things of God. And you're in darkness, sinner. And yet there's one who is the light of the world. And those that follow him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Fifthly, we have a description of the sinner's devouring. Goes on to say there, who eat up my people as they eat up bread. And that's a description of the persecution that God's people experience at the hands of sinners. I don't have time to elaborate any more on that than the different forms that that persecution might take. Not always physical persecution, but in other ways. But sinners, they, they eat up, they devour up God's people as bread. Sinner, there is one who can give you a new appetite. There is one who can give you an appetite for the things of God that you might feast your soul upon Jesus Christ. Then, sixthly, we have a description, really finally, of the sinner's depravity. Summed all up here at the end of verse 4. And call not upon God. And surely that's the height of man's depravity. The fact that he does not worship and love and honor and obey and serve. And reverence the God who made him. And the God who daily loads him with blessings. I wonder is that you? Is this describing you tonight? The sinner's departure, the sinner's defilement, the sinner's deeds, the sinner's darkness, the sinner's devouring, the sinner's depravity. It's all here. A sinful depravity worked in the, out in the life because of a wicked heart. A wicked heart that seeks to declare and scoffingly declares that there is no God, a moral choice, even though that the witness is there, that they know there is a God, but they're determined to declare that there is no God. And it's seen in the life, seen in your life. But listen, there is one whose spirit can reside in your heart and change you that you would call out to God and that you would cry, Abba, Father. From a corrupt heart flows a corrupt life. 
of sinful depravity. Finally and briefly this evening, I see in these verses a sorrowful destruction. Where, you might ask, where's this sorrowful destruction? Well, in the words at the beginning of verse 5, these are great words, and we don't have time to dwell on them. There were they in great fear. And what's God saying? These are not the easiest words to understand at first reading. They were they in great fear. But a marginal Bible gives this rendering, they, and that's the fool. It's the fool that says there's no God or who lives as if there is no God. They feared a great fear. Now this is not the fear of God with respect to reverence. This is the fear of the great fear. In spite of all their efforts to to hold down the truth and try to remain calm and project or endeavor to show that they're unconcerned. They are those who fear a great fear. The fear of meeting God in the judgment. The fear of guilt and condemnation that hangs over them. They fear the great fear. Oh, they make their declarations. They even do it jokingly. But that's only what we see on the surface. I rather choose to believe God. When the lights go out, and the head is upon the pillow, and I don't need to put the front up before others, We're told about those who say there is no God. They feared a great fear. God and guilt and judgment looms large over them. And they fear the king of terrors that someday they will stand before him unprepared, judged for their sins and cast into the everlasting burnings. All atheists who have ever lived or alive today. I'm going to say that again so you get it and you grasp it. It took me to read it twice when I was studying for me to understand it. All atheists who have ever lived are alive today. Now why is that? There's no atheists in hell. There's no atheists in hell. All the atheists, all the God deniers, all those who live as if there is no God are alive today. And that's God's mercy. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, he said, He that doth not believe that there is a God is more vile than the devil. To deny there is a God is a sort of atheism that is not to be found in hell. Sinner, I ask you, why suppress the truth any longer? Why say again to God tonight, no God? Because we go on to read here in verse 5, for, 
Here's a contrast. God is in the generation of the righteous. God is with His people. God is for His people. God has saved His people. He designates them as righteous. And they're only righteous because of imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ which has been received by faith alone. That's what the Savior came to do for sinners. For you, the God denier. For you, the one who lives as if there is no God, he came to obtain a justifying righteousness by his life of perfect obedience, honoring the law, and then giving his life as a sacrifice for sin, satisfying God's justice, appeasing his wrath, shedding his precious blood that your sin might be forgiven. Oh, that's glorious grace. That's marvelous mercy. The great God whom sinners deny and whom sinners live as if there is no God, that He would come and die for them, that He would take upon Himself flesh and a true humanity to suffer and die that they might be made the children of God. Such love, such grace, Don't be the fool any longer. Who was it? Was it Saul? Who said, I have played the fool. And I have erred exceedingly. And sinner, tonight you're playing the fool. And God justly, because of a number of reasons, He calls you a fool. He designates you a vile and a wicked person who by a moral choice turns their back, your back on God. Will you do that tonight again? By a moral choice, turn your back on Him. Well, you will face a sorrowful destruction. You will face this great fear. Don't be the fool. Well, come to Christ. He'll receive you. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll do all those things for you. But you must come. And you must call upon Him. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts for His own name's sake. Let's just bow our heads. And as we do so quietly, let's pray God's people and Let's be still and quiet. Even be very conscious after the last amen. Lord, at these times and these moments is when he deals with individuals. Brings them to that point of turning to Christ or turning away once again. And if you have been troubled or concerned I make myself available as God's servant. You can come and speak to me in the minister's room. Say no longer tonight, no God. I won't. I will not. Say I will. I'll come tonight. God give you grace to do that. Father in heaven, we thank thee that
thou hast opened our eyes to behold our God. We by nature, you have declared it here, all become filthy. All are turned aside. We can't claim we were any different, any better. But Lord, in grace and in mercy, you dealt with our hearts. You give us a new heart. It's a problem of the heart, not a problem of evidence or intellect. Lord, this is a heart problem. And I pray for those in this gathering. And there might not be an atheist here, one who would openly disavow God. But Lord, surely there's individuals here and they live as if there is no God, as if they will not meet Him in judgment, as if there is no heaven, no hell, no law, no accountability. And so, Father, I pray that You will speak to such, You will trouble them, Lord, that You would bring them in grace and in love to Thy Son. We thank Thee for the Saviour, and we thank the Lord for His righteousness. And we pray, O God, that this night that I'll be pleased to save. Bless the message. It's gone on the internet. We know maybe there it might be more probable to reach the atheist, the God denier, the Christ rejecter. And yet, Lord, there's a congregation here in these pews, individuals. Some not saved and they need the Lord. I pray you'll speak to their hearts. Lord, we pray that thou would now part us with thy blessing. And I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit will be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore until the day break and the shadows flee away. For this I pray in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.